0: test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He said, when the evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, because the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to judge correctly the appearance of the sky, but you cannot evaluate the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. And we've seen the Pharisees and Sadducees before. These two um, parties didn't get along very well. So the fact that they're willing to cooperate against Jesus, you know, it's noteworthy. They're both also political in addition to being religious uh, groups. So I think, you know, if you compare them to Democrats and Republicans today, it's not too far fetched. The list of things that our political parties are actually willing to genuinely work together on is very... Jesus into a puppet on strings to perform at their command. And he's not having any of it. Wicked and adulterous generation is not exactly a. I would love to do a miracle for you guys. Here's my menu. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the most highly educated people in Israel. So they should they should be able to start guessing at what they're seeing here. This isn't just a problem, but apparently not. And one more sign piled on top of the mountain. Jesus has already accumulated. He's not going to do anything for them. For so Jesus is just going to leave them. Uh, do keep in mind the sign of Jonah, and we will get to that in a moment. Matthew sixteen five through twelve. When the disciples went to the other side, they forgot to take bread. Watch out, Jesus said to them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, Well, it's because we brought no bread. When Jesus learned this, he said, You who have such little faith, why are you arguing among yourselves about having no bread? And I have to imagine he probably started like this. firmly fastened to face. Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How could you not understand that I was not speaking to you about bread? But beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to be on guard against the yeast and bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it gives me some hope for myself that even Jesus' own hand-picked squad was liable to have collective failures of brain. If if they could be idiots, maybe there's a chance for me. But in all seriousness, I do want to take just a moment to dive into exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees were teaching and why Jesus would have a problem with that. One of the big things that we've already seen in Matthew out of the Pharisees is that they don't seem to have any concept of grace. In Matthew 12, 1 through 14, we've got two accounts right back to back where Jesus' followers pick some green wheat out of the fields on the Sabbath. That's the first one. How hungry would you have to be to walk by a wheat field and just, you know, while it's still green, and grab a few heads of wheat to eat while you're walking? It's probably pretty hungry. But the Pharisees don't care about that. It's, you violate the Sabbath by doing work? you grab green wheat out of the fields to eat. What do you mean you're starving? You violated the Sabbath. You're not going to just quietly starve to death so that the little fence we've put up around the law can remain undisturbed. And then when Jesus heals a man with a withered or shriveled hand, depending on your Bible translation, immediately afterwards, the Pharisees, again, what doesn't mean or that you healed him. You healed him on the Sabbath. We have six other days of the week for this. You, you should have healed him then. And, yeah, that's <coughs> where the Pharisees are in their heads. And a further issue here is going to be the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And just last week we saw an example of this. Matthew 15, verses 1 through Four, then Pharisees and experts in the law came from Jerusalem to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples disobey the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you disobey the command of God because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. Verses 5 and 9 continue, But you say, if someone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is given to God, he does not need to honor his father. You have nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And they worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines, the commandments, of men. So the Pharisees will condemn others for violating any tradition of theirs, but do not follow God themselves. And if you remember Josh's sermon last week, he talked about how that hand washing worked. It didn't do a whole lot for sanitation. You just got your hands kind of wet. So the yeast of the Pharisees condemns other people for violating ornamental laws, but it has. Either for others or for God. Now, just kind of keep this in mind because we will be talking about this a little more later, but for now, if you're a parent, which I am not, but I've heard enough stories to kind of see how this goes, you've probably had something like this happen. You know, you've got a little kid learning the ABCs and it has a real breakthrough and like figures out half a dozen words by himself without you helping him. So you're all proud. You go to find your phone, or maybe put his, uh, you know, the kid drawing up on the fridge with a magnet, and then you come back to find that very same child putting his newfound skills in handwriting to use by writing on the walls with a permanent marker. <laughs> so Jesus is going to have that same kind of moment here in Matthew 16 verses. When Jesus came to the area of Caesarea the Levi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to him, "Then, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, You are blessed, Simon the Son of John. This flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So if you go back into the original language, Peter's name means rock. Um, Petros, petroglyph, that kind of thing. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven And whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So Jesus doesn't want to quite operate out in the open yet and say, I am the Messiah because, well, we've seen how well he gets along with the religious leadership. They would kill him rather quickly. And although his plan is already to go to the cross... The disciples aren't quite ready yet, as you know we're seeing here. But this is the proud parent part. And look in Acts; it's clear Peter did get the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Um, Acts 10:28. He said to them, "You know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Yet God has shown me that I should call a person defiled or ritually unclean." Without getting too deep into the weeds, Peter in Acts 10, what he's doing here is he's sort of opening up the church to the Gentiles, which hadn't happened up to this point in Acts. If there were any non-ethnic Jews in the church up to this point, they would have converted to Judaism first, and then Christianity later. And this also shows something else that isn't is obvious in every translation. The NET does a decent job of bringing it out. The binding and releasing Jesus references in Matthew 16, it's not a license for Peter to just make up whatever law he wants to because, you know, whatever you bound will be bound, whatever you loose, etc. No, it's whatever Peter binds here will have already been bound in heaven first. And the same with releasing. It's not Peter just saying, well, I, I think this should be fine. So it's fine. Another interesting fact is Catholics make this passage, Matthew 16, and its parallels in the other synoptics, out to be Jesus establishing the papacy. It's not, but we'll get to that in a second. Matthew 16, verse 21 through 24. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts of the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verses 25-28. through 28, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels on the glory of the Father. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And there's the uh, scribbling on the walls with a sharpie part. For all that Peter knows to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees... He doesn't quite seem to understand you know, what Jesus is doing. And get behind me, Satan! Thing. If we go clear back to chapter four of Matthew, what Peter is doing here is the exact same thing that Satan has previously tempted Jesus with. That's why Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan," because it's the same off it's the same offer that the devil made. It's Messiah without a cross. And that doesn't quite work. Because Peter, the Jews would have expected the Messiah to be a kind of super David coming in to make Israel great again and get rid of the Romans and just anyone else the Jews them blank. like. And Jesus is going to correct this. No, I'm not here to be David with a bigger sword. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and that's follow. Now, what I mentioned about the Catholicism thing, verses 17 through 20 are something Catholics will say is, oh, see, see, that's the Pope right there. That's where that comes from. Which makes it very remarkable that like three verses later, Jesus will then turn around and call the alleged first pope Satan? Because Catholicism holds that the pope is infallible. I think you can see a bit of a problem here. And even later on, in Galatians 2.11, we have this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he had clearly done wrong. The wrongdoing was that Peter had fallen into Cephas is a different word for Peter in a different language, and it leaves it as Cephas here. Peter had fallen into a rather pharisaical trap of only associating with certain people but not others. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three shelters. One for you, one for Jesus commanded them, Do not tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the experts in law say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does indeed come first and will restore all things. And I tell you that Elijah has already come. Yet they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted. In the same way, the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So if that's not the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, I don't know what else would be. Something additional to keep in mind when we're reading the Transfiguration is, this isn't so obvious to us, but one of my commentaries pointed out that if you're a Jew in the first century, which is who Matthew is writing to, this would have been a really, really obvious reference to the story of Moses going up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, 29. Especially the part where you know you have Jesus' face glowing and Moses' face glowing from having seen God's glory. Now Peter didn't get what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be and really none of the disciples do yet. But Matthew is showing us here who Jesus is. Now God showed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, but God didn't call Moses his son. And this is significant. In Jewish culture, Moses held a spot that we kind of don't really have in modern America. Kind of like if George Washington had also founded the church here. That's Close to what Moses would have represented for Jews kind of the Jew supreme but God doesn't say here in Transfiguration oh listen to Jesus and Moses and Elijah he says listen to my one son and Elijah is probably only behind Moses in the sort of Jewish hierarchy of heroes and he's here too but it's not listen to Elijah, it's listen to my son. This isn't just, well, he went up on a mountain and things got shiny for a little bit. This is a proclamation from God that Jesus is something and someone greater than anyone the Jewish people had ever seen. Suppose in keeping with the Moses parallels it's fitting that just as Moses had to deal with the uh, Failures of his people when he came down the mountain in making the golden calf and several other unsavory things. Jesus does too, not a golden calf, but some problems. Matthew 17 verses 14 through 17. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, "Lord, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and into the water." I brought him to your disciples, but they were not able to heal him. Jesus answered, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? He told them, it was because of your little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to here. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. One of those other things that makes me feel a little better about myself is, you know, if you ever feel like with the three days is The double dragon tax, doesn't he? He said, Yes. When Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Well, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tolls or taxes? From their sons or from foreigners? After he said, From foreigners, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. But so that we don't offend them, go to the lake and throw out a hook. Take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a four dragon coin. Take that and give it to them for me and you. So, Jesus could, by right, exempt himself from the tax. You know, he's the Son of God. But he doesn't. And I think this is definitely something that we could learn from. American culture is huge on rights and freedoms and any number of synonyms for those words you want to think of. But it might do us well sometimes to say, well, I have that right, but let's not use it this one time. What use is it if my First Amendment right, if exercising that, turns someone away from God? People have eternal souls. text of Matthew 16 and 17. But I want to go and touch back on a couple of points in this text. First of all, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Gospels aren't 100% of everything that Jesus said. At the end of his Gospel, John writes that I suppose if everything that Jesus said and did were written down, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Which means the Gospel writers are going to have to be very selective with what they include. And what they include happens to contain a lot of Jesus fighting back against religious hypocrisy, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Which means there might be something in that for us to take away. Gospels will always outline that Jesus is greater than anything else, so it would stand for reason. If we're following Jesus, the world is not really going to be able to stop the church, and it hasn't yet, but a church that isn't really following Jesus, well now that's something that the world is going to have a field day. Will say oh, if you vote for this political party, well, you can't possibly be a Christian. We will have things like the transgender, the LGBTQ RSTUVWXYZ agenda. It's not a good thing at all. But how many times does Jesus? talk about the world's sin. Well, it's not that much. And yet, how often are we just looking out and saying, oh, well, those non-Christians, they're sure sinful, aren't they? Well, yeah, they would be. And then we ignore the sins within the church, the hypocrisy, the gossip that we're all liable to because we're human. And as a result, You have a weak, anemic church pointing at the world and going, Ew. Well, they're in the world. They're going to be sinful. The job of the church is to bring them in. So if the church is being the church, it's not going to matter how sinful the world is. That's why there's so much warning against how the Pharisees operated. Because they ignored their own sins, their own problems, and concentrated on pointing at everyone else. And so they had a weak and useless faith. We need to be careful... Against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teaching of them, Peter completely fails to understand what Jesus is doing. And then the failure to drive out the demons. We need to understand that, yeah, we're gonna mess up. That's the whole reason Jesus came, is because we already did. But the errors aren't end, because we saw with Peter. Jesus calls him Satan. Not literally, but you know. And then he goes on to be the rock that Jesus builds his church on. The other disciples, aside from Judas, the same thing. Jesus rebukes them as a group just as many times as he does Peter by name. So, Yeah, we're going to mess up, but that's not a reason to stop.